All right, let's turn to uh, Exodus chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. The title of our message this morning is The First Plague, the River of Blood. And as you're turning there to Exodus chapter 7, uh, please remember the great gospel promise that God says that when we draw near to God, that he will draw near to us. Exodus chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. God bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have made a promise that just as the rain and the snow fall to the earth and do not return unto you a void, but they give flowers and fruit and trees. So, Lord, your word will not return unto you void, but it will succeed in that which you have sent it to do. We pray, Lord, that it would have great success in our hearts today. Cause us to move, Lord, from one degree of glory to another. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Well, we now enter into the most action-packed part of 
the book, The Ten Plagues. And, and what we need to remember as we go over each of these plagues is that there's always a particular point to the signs and the wonders that God performs. So remember when Jesus healed the man born blind in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, that was to illustrate the point that he is the light of the world, John 8, 12, that whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Likewise, when Jesus cursed the fig tree, in Matthew chapter 21, 18 and 19, it was to show the doom that was about to fall on Jerusalem, Matthew 24, 32 through 35. So likewise, these plagues that we are about to unpack, they have a very particular purpose. Um, God did not randomly choose these things as just like neat little displays of his power. He was aiming at something. Turn with me, please, to Numbers chapter 33. Numbers chapter 33, verse 4. This is after the Exodus account, and Moses is recounting what God had done specifically during these plagues. Look at Numbers 33, verse 4. While the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them, on their gods also the Lord executed judgments. You see, these plagues were Yahweh's overturning all of the gods of Egypt. He was judging all of the gods of Egypt in each one of these plagues. You remember what Pharaoh had said to Moses, the first time that Moses met with him, he said in Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Michael Barrett says here, the primary point that God is going to make with these plagues was to address that ignorance, who is the Lord. The Egyptians were going to learn that he was Yahweh and learning who Yahweh was as the one true and living God required putting all other gods in their place. This is like a dual lesson. It wasn't just the Egyptians who needed uh, to learn this. Israel needed to learn this. Um, remember, we've, we've already seen that Israel served Egypt's gods just as much as Egypt did. Um, they needed to see that Egypt's gods were no gods at all. And thus, again, we see how the Exodus account is a paradigm of the gospel. Dear congregation, this is how our salvation begins. Um, we don't merely get delivered from the bondage of sin. We need to be delivered from the gods that our hearts love and worship. That's, that's a massive part of salvation, freeing us from foreign gods. Salvation is ultimately our hearts being recaptured to turn from idols to the true and living God. 
There are three parts to our message this morning. First, we're going to see blood and the supremacy of worship. Secondly, blood and the terrible judgment. And then thirdly, blood and the great battle. So let's look first at the blood and the supremacy of worship. Recall last time that Moses and Aaron entered into Pharaoh's court. Aaron threw his rod down. It turned into a serpent. Pharaoh's demonic sorcerers did the same thing, and yet Aaron's serpent swallowed up theirs. But we, we leave the court with Pharaoh's heart still being hardened. And that's where our text begins. Look at with me at verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Whenever the scripture repeats itself, it's really important. Uh, This is the fourth time it talks about Pharaoh's hearts being hardened. It's going to be repeated 15 more times in Exodus. Uh, This is an absolutely vital part of the story. The Lord hardened or he strengthened Pharaoh's heart to resist the Lord. Just in case you weren't here when we first taught on this, this doesn't mean that that God created new evil in Pharaoh's heart. Uh, He simply handed him over to a reprobate mind. He he, uh, withheld the grace that would have um, restrained Pharaoh's wickedness. But more to the point, why is this repetition so important? Well, because it means something in particular for Israel. If Pharaoh's heart is hardened, then that means it will take longer for Israel to be liberated. And if it takes longer for Israel to be liberated, that means that their suffering is prolonged. Now, why would God do that? Because there is something infinitely more important than Israel's physical freedom. Hold on to that thought. God now instructs Moses what to do. Look at verse 15. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. As he's going out to water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. Now, perhaps Pharaoh was going out to the Nile like Pharaoh's daughter did in, in chapter 2 to take a bath. Um, that, that's probably true. Uh, but more than likely, what was actually happening here is Pharaoh was going out to the Nile just like you came to the Lord's house on the Lord's day. The Nile was his altar. It was the place where he worshipped. All of Egypt had exchanged the truth about God For a lie and worshiped the creature rather than the creator. The Nile, remember we read in Numbers 33 that God judged their gods. The Nile was the embodiment of all the strength, all the wealth, and all the resources of Egypt. In a word, the Nile was their life. If you pull up an ancient map, of Egypt on Google, you'll see that every single major city was situated right next to the Nile. Uh, 
Memphis, Saqqara, Amarna, Karnak, Heracanopolis. Every major city found its home next to the Nile. Why? Well, because water is basic, is a basic element that's necessary for life. I mean, that's, I, I hate going camping in the desert, right? It's awful. Why? Because there's no river there. Uh, the, the, the river, the Nile, it gave them everything they needed for drinking, for bathing, for cooking. The Nile was how the merchants um, traveled to make their wealth. It was where all their fish came from. It was their wall of defense against uh, enemy intrusion. Furthermore, whenever the Nile flooded, it, it irrigated Egypt with rich nutrients and minerals, ma- making it fertile for crop growth. Children, boys and girls, perhaps you've already learned about the circulatory system in your schooling. Um, you know, your, your arteries takes blood all over your body, right? Well, what do, what do those arteries carry besides blood? They carry oxygen and all of the nutrients that your organs and your bones and your muscles need. If your circulatory system stops, you die. The Egyptians believed that the Nile was literally the bloodstream of their god, Osiris. It supplied Egypt with everything that they needed. They worshipped him and his partner, Hopi. Uh, Hopi was the spirit god of the Nile who made sure that the Nile flooded every year. Um, Hopi was a Bearded man with female breasts and a hanging stomach, probably signifying pregnancy. And I just, maybe a parenthesis here, isn't it amazing that there's nothing new under the sun? The Egyptians worshipped a transgender god, and they sang hymns to it. Hail to your countenance, Hopi, who goes up from the land, who comes to deliver Egypt, who brings food, who is abundant in provisions, who creates every sort of his good things. Everything that has come into being is through his power. There is no district of living men without him. They sang hymns to these gods. And now this is why Yahweh, or this is why Pharaoh didn't obey Yahweh, because he had his own gods that he worshipped. So the Lord tells what what Moses to do next, verse sixteen. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far. You have not obeyed. This is a summary of the entire conflict of Egypt right here, of the Exodus right here. I required that my people come and serve me, that they come and worship me, but you have not obeyed. Why did the conflict in the Exodus begin? It began over worship. It began over worship. Yahweh required the worship of his people, and Pharaoh was worshiping his own God. And that brings us then to our first principle this morning. The question of who will be worshipped is the explanation behind every conflict in world history. 
The question of who will be worshipped is the explanation of every conflict in world history. And I know you think, oh, that's just, that's just preacher's hyperbole. Um, no, it's not. Worship is the source of every single conflict. It's the singular cause behind every war, every famine, every argument, every crime, every divorce, every rivalry in the earth. Let me just give you three proofs. Proof number one, worship is the cause of famines. Worship is the cause of famines. Um, Why did Elijah prophesy that the rain would stop in Israel for three and a half years? 1 Kings 17, 1. Why? Because Israel had given themselves over to Baal worship. And God told them in Deuteronomy eleven sixteen and 17 that if they worshiped other gods, he would shut up the heavens so that there would be no rain. Friends, natural disasters are not natural. They are supernatural judgments against idolatry and false worship. That's how you have to read them. Proof number two, worship is the cause of of national um, calamities. Worship is the cause of national calamities. If you you look in the Old Testament, the biblical explanation for the fall of nations, whether it be God's covenant people, Israel, or whether it be pagan nations like Babylonia, uh, Syria, or Egypt, is because they worshiped other gods. I mean, just look in the major prophets. Look at these denouncements. Why does he bring judgment against them? Societies come to an end because they pollute their land with idol worship. Jeremiah 16, 18. And then proof number three, uh, maybe shrunk down on a micro level, worship is the cause of every single argument. Worship is the cause of every single argument. Uh, Children, boys and girls, do you realize what's happening in your hearts when you sinfully bicker and argue with your brother or your sister? Do you know what's happening there? It's self-worship. James chapter 4, verse 1 says, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? What, what are our passions? Our passions are to get our own way. And that's at war with our duty to worship and love God and love our neighbor. So it's the cause of every argument. You see, this conflict between Moses and Pharaoh, between God and Egypt, was a conflict over worship. That's where every conflict starts. What is the chief end of man? The sovereign Lord of heaven and earth who made the sea and everything in it. He made us specifically so that we would serve him, obey him, and love him. And so the exhortation this morning is to worship him. Don't be in conflict with the Lord as Pharaoh was. Give everything that you have to him. Make him the pursuit of your life. Don't you see? This is precisely why God continued to harden Pharaoh's heart. Why he continued to prolong Israel's 
suffering. Not, not because he liked the suffering in itself, but they needed to be freed from their love affair of these other gods. And so with each plague, each god that he knocked down on the, on the, on the trash heap, Israel was, was, was able to see there was no one like our God. There was no one like him. The Egyptians worshipped a bearded pregnant man. This is such a lesson. And it's, it's a lesson of how absurd it is to worship other gods. The Egyptians trusted in one God in one river in North Africa. Friends, our God is over every river. He's over every sea. He's over every ocean. Heaven is his throne. Earth is his footstool. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever the world was brought into being from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. The Egyptians turned to the Nile to defend them and to keep them safe from national calamity. But it couldn't. You know how our God is? Our God is our refuge and our strength. He is an ever-present help in trouble. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, we have nothing to fear. The Egyptians trusted in their Nile for their food supply, for their food. God has not only promised to supply every need of ours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, but God himself is our food. That's what we celebrate every Lord's Supper. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. He is our food. The Egyptians looked to the Nile as their wealth, as their treasure, as their sustenance, but our God is our treasure. Whom do I have in heaven but you, and on earth there's nothing I desire besides you? My flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Loved ones, that's who we are to serve and to worship and to love, a God who will never, ever let us down. That's what this conflict is about, is about worship. Let's look secondly then at blood and the terrible judgment. Verses 17 and 18. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. By this, by this plague, you shall know that I am the self-existent, eternal, unchangeable God over heaven and earth. That the earth and its fullness is mine. question here I think that's important to ask is why blood? Why blood? Why not make the water bitter and undrinkable like 
the waters at Marah in Exodus 15.23? Or why not turn off the rain like Elijah did and make the river bone dry in 1 Kings 17.1? Why blood? Why blood? Because our God is a just God. The Egyptians shed the blood of Israel's sons in the Nile. And so now God turns their Nile into blood. It's the principle of lex uh, talionis, where the punishment meets the crime. Look at verse 19. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals and their ponds and all their pools of water so that they may become blood and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Every drop of water that the Nile supplied, even that was in their own homes, turned to blood. Verse 20 and 21, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood, and the fish in the Nile died. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Children, boys and girls, no doubt, as you get older, you'll especially find um, skeptics who very much will deny the, the story of the plagues. I was just on YouTube yesterday, and it, it was they're basically scoffing and laughing at this account that it possibly couldn't be. So they gave these explanations for why the, the, the Nile turned to blood. One explanation was this phenomenon called red tide, where... Um, Red algae uh, multiplies in great numbers, and it can be toxic to some fish. Another explanation is that the, this volcano blew up on an island, and it let out this red mineral dust called cinnabar, and it caused this disaster. But what I want to press up on you, boys and girls, is that the reason why these skeptics reject the, the, the river turning into blood is not because facts say otherwise. It's because they have a personal faith of their own. You see, the unbelieving scientist holds to a worldview called naturalism. And naturalism is built on the assumption that nature is all that there is. It's a closed system. There is no God. And guess what? Science can't prove that. They believe that assumption by faith. And so they approach the Bible and they reject our faith by their own faith. So let me remind you that the fool is not the Christian who believes what God says. The fool is the person who says there is no God. That's the fool. Psalm 14.1, uh, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, this was a real historical event. Uh, all the Nile and all the waters connected to it turned to blood. And it was a national crisis. The air was filled with the stench 
of dead, rotting fish. And every day, 300 million cubic meters of rotting blood passed by their cities. Travel was shut down completely. Fishing was shut down completely. Everybody stopped taking baths. There was nothing to drink. And their national religion was turned upside down. Phil Riken compared this event to the fuel shortage that Great Britain faced in September of 2000. He says this, because of the high cost of gasoline, truckers conspired to blockade the nation's oil refineries. Within days, the country was nearly at a standstill. There were long lines at filling stations where fuel was um, cost five times the former price. Reserves ran dangerously low, and Britain was within a day or two of a complete transportation shutdown. No planes, no trains, no automobiles, all because of oil, the lifeblood of the modern state. The Nile River was the lifeblood of Egypt. And when it actually turned to blood, there was panic in the land. Look at verses 22 and 23. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. We saw last week that these magicians were into the occult. Their secret arts were demonic. And I do believe that by the power of Satan, they were able to duplicate this sign. Perhaps they got water digging it out of the banks, and they took that to Pharaoh and, and turned it into blood. But here's the point that I want you to see. John Currid points this out. Quote, there was a sense of ironic justice about the success of the magicians. They merely succeeded in adding to the plague against their own people. The sorcerers were unable to reverse the plague brought by God. They could only intensify it. Oh, here's some water to drink. Oh, let's turn it into blood. And, and they actually intensified it by further hardening Pharaoh's heart. Look, halfway through verse 22, we read, So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. And he would not listen to them, as the Lord said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. Sorcerers succeeded in hardening Pharaoh's heart, and that brought the next plague on. Verses 24 and 25. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Just as creation week was a, was a full seven days, so these seven days of blood seem to suggest that what Egypt was undergoing was decreation. And that brings us then to our second point, our second principle. Those who refuse to worship the Lord will, in the end, have all the blessings of this life removed from them. Those who refuse to worship the Lord will, in the end, have all the blessings of this life removed from them. 
You see, this earthly plague is just a shadow of the eternal one. When God judges the wicked on the last day, all of their comforts will be taken away from them. Consider the following. During this plague in Egypt, they could find some water for relief as they dug at the banks. But during that plague in eternity, not even one drop of water will be found for relief. The rich man said to Abraham in Luke 16, 24, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Remember, he's in Hades. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. He couldn't even find one drop of water. This plague in Egypt was located in one nation. Conceivably, someone could have left and found relief elsewhere. But on that day, there's no escape. There's no escape for the wicked. Abraham told the rich man in Luke 16, 26, Between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. In Egypt, there was indeed a great misery. The people of Egypt, we read, were miserable. But on that day, the wicked will experience a misery that has never been known on the face of the earth. Matthew 13, 49 and 50, so it will be on the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that day, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Brothers and sisters, we have hard days down here or hard seasons down here, hard sorrows down here, but can you imagine a constant, unmitigated weeping and gnashing of teeth? This plague in Egypt lasted only seven days. It was a national crisis, but the plague in the day of judgment will be an eternal crisis. It'll never come to an end. Edward says here that there's no reckoning up of the millions of years or the millions of ages. All arithmetic here fails. No rules of multiplication can reach the amount, for there is no end. The door of mercy is forever shut. Revelation 14.11, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. See, this river of blood is a foreshadow of the river of anguish and terror and eternal death, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And this day will come to pass on those pharaohs and those Egyptians of this world who refuse to worship the Lord of earth and heaven. The Egyptians only had their earthly comforts taken away for a temporary time, but the wicked will have their Comforts taken away for all eternity and world without end. So, dear friend, if that's you, if you're in the camp of the Egyptians this morning, if you refuse to worship Yahweh, the, the Lord who made heaven and earth, if you refuse to cling to Him, to trust to Him, to own Him as your own, that He would be your Savior, that He would be your Lord, then be warned. 
Don't you realize that these things were written down in the Scripture for our warnings? And just as the time ran out for the Egyptians, so one day the time will be run out for you and you'll not have another chance. Today's Scripture is God's kindness to you. It's, it's meant to turn your heart to the living God so that you would not suffer this fate. God is not a God who delights in the death of the wicked. He's not. He's, he's not up in heaven rubbing his hands together, desiring to punish people. That's, that's not his heart, but he is a holy God, and, and he will not be mocked. He will execute judgment. So I plead with you, if you're in that Egyptian camp, to, to turn away from those false gods, turn away from whatever Nile River that you're trusting in where you find your comfort and your satisfaction and your pleasure and your security. Turn to the living God of heaven and earth. He alone can save you. He alone can comfort you. He alone can satisfy you. Scripture says, turn to me all the ends of the earth and you will be saved. Let's look finally then at the at blood and the great battle. What I couldn't figure out in this passage was whether or not God's people suffered in this plague or not. Because it's not until the fourth plague where God specifically says in chapter 8, verse 22, but on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, and then no plague will come there. From the fourth plague on, it's very clear that Israel didn't suffer at all. So the question is, did Israel suffer in these first three plagues? And at this point, honestly, I don't know. Some commentators say yes, some commentators say no. But let's suppose for now that they did share in this suffering of these three plagues. Is that any different than what we see in the world today? Um, our country has come under the judgment of God and, and there are Christians here. How do we sort that out? How do we make sense of that? Well, just like Israel served many of the Egyptian gods, so many Christians, brothers and sisters, Christians like you and I, have our hearts captivated by the gods of this age. We've often put our trust and our hope in the things that we can see with our eyes and touch with our hands. And it's easy to test this out. Does your heart rise and fall with the next headline. Hoping you'll find deliverance from something that the, the Nile of America can give to you. God delivered Israel from their hoping in Egypt's gods through the plague through these judgments, and, and God does the same with us. As God is pouring out His judgment, even on our country, even on our world today, He is delivering our hearts 
from the gods that so easily entrap us, those things that we have hoped in. Which means that whatever temporal judgments that you and I face, it's not for our harm. It's for our deliverance. Our God is fighting for us today. He's fighting for us. Just like he fought for the Israelites in the land of Egypt. He's fighting to put Egypt down, and he's fighting to remove the gods from their hearts. That brings us to our third principle. In all God's judgments, the triune God is always fighting on behalf of his people. In all of God's judgments, the triune God is always fighting on behalf of his people. Brothers and sisters, we will face hardship. Many of you have already faced unbelievable hardship. Through many trials, we must enter the kingdom of God. But the difference between the hardships that we face and the hardships that the Egyptians face is that God is not fighting for them. God's fight is specifically against those who offer false worship and against those who harm and oppress his people. Consider the promise of Scripture. When God covenanted with Abraham... Israel was Abraham's people, and you were joined in that covenant the moment you hoped in Christ. He promised all of Abraham's descendants this promise, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. Egypt came under God's curse because they cursed God's people. Has anything changed today? No. He still brings people under the curse today who reach out to try to harm his people. Our God fights for us. Our God fights for us. And this is exactly what Moses told Israel when they left Egypt. Deuteronomy 1.30, the Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did when you were in Egypt. That's what the prophet told King Jehoshaphat when he faced the Moabites and the Ammonites. Second Chronicles 20, 17. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm. Hold your position. See the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. This is what Paul tells every Christian today. If God be for us, who can be against us? God, who did not spare his only son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Loved ones, don't you see? Regardless if Israel suffered under this plague of blood or not, this plague of blood actually became their salvation. Ultimately, William Cooper, 1731 to 1800, suffered tremendously from despair and depression all of his life. Suicidal at many different points, had to be checked into a mental asylum. And he was a Christian who wrote many hymns that we dearly love. During one of his times of plague, he wrote one of the most beloved songs, There is a fountain filled with blood. 
There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. William Cooper understood something very deeply in his despair. He understood that Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel, became that plague for us. He was the river of blood. Zechariah 13.1 says, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So take that in, dear child of God. Just as the Egyptians were powerless against that river of blood, so you too, dear Christian, are powerless against the cleansing power of Jesus Christ. You're powerless against that river of blood. What can you bring against that river of blood? The gods that you have worshipped have sunk down into the abyss. The sins that you have committed have been drowned in the depths. The iniquities that have plagued you have been swallowed up in that crimson deep. And just as that river of blood lasted seven days, the number of complete perfection, so the blood of Christ has already completely and perfectly cleansed you, world without end. Don't you see that you were plunged in that crimson flood of Jesus' blood? You've come out as white as snow. Loved ones, don't weary yourself of digging at the, the banks of the Nile. What are you looking for? Are you looking for muddy water? Are you looking to, to resurrect that, that bearded, pregnant God? See in that blood the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. See in that blood your perfect atonement before your Father in heaven. There's no need, of, there's no need to despair of the stench that it brings. It's, the, it's to the Egyptians that it's an aroma of death, but to you it's an aroma of life to life. That precious river. That fount filled from Emmanuel's veins. That's where you were plunged. It's where you lose all of your guilty stains. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, to thank God that you poured out on your enemies this river of blood, to think that you would turn around and do the same thing to your own son. Lord, prevent us from believing the fallacy that, that Jesus had to twist your arm, that he had to make atonement in order for you to love us. No, the reason why he was sent into the world is because you loved us. For God so loved the world. Help us to see, Father, Almighty Jehovah, that you are the God who fights for your people. And that we can truly say with the Apostle Paul, if God is for us, 
who can be against us? So, Lord, we ask that you would do the same thing that you did to ancient Israel, your ancient people, Lord, that you would free us from those gods that have captured our hearts. Free us from putting our trust in other things. Free us from the trust of our bank account. Free us from the trust of our circumstances. Free us from the fear of death. Free us from whatever anxiety that has gripped our hearts, Lord, that we could know and believe and trust and see with the eyes of faith. that we already have a God in heaven that we worship, that loves us, has promised to work out all things together for the good, for those whom he has called. We pray that you would do this mighty work in us, God. Remove every idol. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.